Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Shambhavi Sarasvati. Shambhavi is the spiritual director of Jaya Kula. Her principal training is in the view and practices of Trika Shaivism, the classical tantric tradition of Kashmir, and the Dogen tradition of Tibet. She has been fortunate to have trained with several great teachers in these and other non-dual traditions. Shambhavi is a householder sannyasini and a devotee of Anandamaya Ma. She hopes to bring more people to an understanding of the breadth and depth of Ma's teachings. Shambhavi has studied Ayurveda for self-care for the past 15 years. She is also a Vedic astrologer and expert diviner. She is the author of Tantra, The Play of Awakening, Pilgrims to Openness, Direct Realization, Tantra in Everyday Life, Returning, and No Retreat, Poems on the Way to Waking Up. In addition, she published an academic book, Avatar Bodies, a Tantra for Posthumanism. She holds an MFA in fiction from Mills College and a PhD in modern thought and literature from Stanford University. Shambhavi left academia in 2004 in order to devote herself to practice, writing, and teaching in her spiritual tradition. So with that, hello, Shambhavi. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me. So I was just telling you before we started recording that I've been listening to some of the audio from your website and watching some of the clippings from your wonderful satsangs. And it's really been such a a pleasure to kind of get to know you in this way. And so I'm really excited to share some of your teachings with our our listeners and our audience. So first, I just wanted to talk a little bit um, or have you talk a little bit about your own story and sort of what brought you to these teachings. Well, my story was really of an innocent. I didn't have any connection that I knew of to India. I didn't think of myself as being on a spiritual path until I was quite old. Mm. I wouldn't have defined myself as a spiritual person. But ever since I can remember from a very young age, I had this overpowering sense that there was a lot more to reality than what I could see. Right. And that idea kind of drove me crazy. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So it really propelled me into a lot of different kinds of investigations, including getting a science degree uh, in undergraduate school and a lot of other pathways that really didn't pan out, weren't really very satisfying. And then When I was 15 years old, I went to one of those hippie high schools. I don't even know if they still have them, but in any case, uh, I I had a teacher who taught a little high school seminar in the work of Wilhelm Reich. Oh, my. I know. And I took it, and I became completely entranced by that. And I actually got a little part-time job and started going to Reiki and therapy. Mm. And it just... It turned out that the woman who was my therapist, this really wonderful Italian woman, Fiora Raji, she was kind of a mystic. Mm. And she taught me how to do things like see energy, see subtle energy. And she really helped to open up my senses in a way that kind of set the tone for everything that came after that. So I really consider her to be my first spiritual teacher. Wow. Then when I was 27, I just uh, stumbled into this teaching that was offered at the New York Open Center. I was living in New York at the time, uh, taught by someone whose name I really can't remember, but basically what she was teaching was classical Kriya Yoga. Mm. She didn't call it that. She didn't say it was from India. I had no idea what it was, but all I knew was that I was completely magnetized And I felt like I had found what I was looking for. And it wasn't until another teacher and several years later of really beginning to incorporate this kind of practice, this internal work with the subtle body into my everyday life that I actually found out that it was from India. Mm. I mean, that's how innocent I was. This was really before the time when there was a yoga studio on every corner. And I had taken some yoga classes with a bunch of dancers from the building that I lived in in New York City. But, you know, I really, I was a know-nothing. So when I found out that what I had been practicing and loving for a number of years was from India, I went to the library and I got out a book called something like The History of India. (laughs) 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 
<laughs> I really didn't know anything about it. I didn't know they had any interest in India. Anyway, uh, you know, as I've, I've often joked, I felt like I was dropped onto an alien planet with nothing but a book of matches and a paper clip. <laughs> it, it really took me 10 years of solid study, reading everything I could get my hands on before I felt like I had even a rudimentary sense of the shape of the tradition that I was practicing in. And it was one of those early teachers who told me that, you know, not only was the tradition from India, but it was called Tantra, Mm -hmm. which was also not a familiar word to me. And I, I remember going on the internet and plugging the word Tantra in and of course, it returned a whole bunch of stuff about sexual practice, right, yep. mm-hmm. which wasn't at all what I had been taught. So I, I knew that uh, I was looking for something else. And eventually I found uh, a lineage that I got initiated into and started a much more concerted practice. So that's that's it in a nutshell. But mm. basically, the, from the moment I walked into that Kriya Yoga teaching, at the open center, I just never looked back. I, I just felt this is the answer for me. Wow. And uh, when along that way, did you actually study personally with Ananda Maima? Like, how did you inter- how did you come well, to uh, come to uh, uh, encounter her teachings? Well, unfortunately, she was alive when I was in my twenties, mm. and it was before she died. I think around the same time that I walked into that Kriya Yoga class, but. Oh, wow. Uh, unfortunately, I was too busy hanging out in punk rock bars and reading <laughs> novels to pay much attention to any of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, even if I had had the means to go overseas and meet her, it wouldn't have occurred to me. Right. So uh, I, you know, was practicing in a lineage and there, I didn't know anything about Anandamayama, but her picture was around here and there. And then she started coming in my dreams Mm. and talking to me. And uh, I was extremely skeptical for actually a number of years this was going on. But eventually, through the dreams and other experiences that I had, I finally had to realize that she actually was my sakuru, my real guru. And, you know, at that point, I had started reading her teachings, and she only taught in satsang. She didn't read, read, uh, write anything or give workshops or any of the things we do today. Yeah, yeah. She just sat, and people asked her questions, and she loved to talk, and she would laugh and talk with people and, and answer their questions. And that form of teaching just so appealed to me. But more than that, uh, you know, I had just spent 10 years or so uh, reading the works of the Trika Shaivite tradition and other tantric traditions. And then, you know, I was in academia and I, I did a lot of research in that field for my dissertation, which became my book. And when I started reading Ma's teachings, which were given in just ordinary language, I realized that they were the most pristine thoroughgoing, non-dogmatic, awake teachings I had ever read. You know, and by that time I had, uh, you know, been studying with one of the great Dzogchen teachers, Anamkai Norbu Rinpoche. I had read a lot of Dzogchen teachings, which is really related to my tradition. I I mean, I, I had read a lot of just fantastic, wonderful teachings and had received many wonderful teachings. And I really felt like Ma encompassed all of them. And so I have, you know, incorporated her teachings into what I teach. So is she, is she considered a tantric teacher? I'm not, I'm really no. not very familiar with her work. No, not at all. Uh, she was born in Bengal, the part of Bengal that is now Bangladesh. Okay. And her family, from what I can gather were t- very typical of that time in, in Bangladesh. They were Shakta Tantrics, but they were also Vaishnavites. And she was really unclassifiable. She is one of the beings along the same lines as Krishna and Ram. She, she said she was an avatar of Vishnu uh, a couple of times in her life. It wasn't something she 
touted, but right, right. Uh, to a couple of her close disciples, she said that. But but basically, she was born very awake, uh, much more awake than most of us will ever get in many lifetimes. So she didn't have any tradition. She always said, whatever you say I am, that's what I am. Hmm. But her teachings are, as she said, I speak in the language of the five elements of hmm. earth, water, fire, air, and space. And those of you that can understand this broken language will understand me. And of course, that's exactly the foundation of the tantric tradition also. And just an encounter with the intelligences of the elements. So I've never read anything that she taught that was in conflict with anything I've studied. And in fact, I think she is less dogmatic and more thoroughgoing than uh, some of the greatest teachers I've read. But she was a woman. She taught in a colloquial style. Basically, she just hung out with people. That was her teaching method. Mm -hmm. So if... So if someone if someone wanted to um, sort of introduce themselves to Ananda Mahima in terms of like finding a book of her teachings, what would you suggest? What would be a good place to start? Well, there's a lot of great free uh, sources. So okay. one of them is the AnandaMahima.org website. Mm -hmm. where, uh, they have a bookshelf and you can download lots of things. Oh, wow. Lots of like tra um, translations of her son of her satsangs, and particularly there's an orange book, I think it's called Words of Ananda Mahima, that was translated by one of her principal Western disciples, a woman named Atmananda, and those are some of his her more esoteric or you could even say philosophical, although I hate that word. But anyway, uh, you know those are the teachings that I first encountered when I first started reading her, and they just blew me away. So I think you have to read them in a different way, though, than you would read a more formal kind of a teaching. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, they're, they're ex she loved language and she was, a ma she was a master at playing with language. And some of that translates and some of it doesn't. But in any case, her words were incredibly precise and yet delivered in this everyday way. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to have to put that in the show notes. I'll put some links to that website so our Wonderful. listeners can check that out. Yeah. Um, so, so now, if as you were mentioning, she had mentioned herself as an avatar of Vishnu, and you wrote, um, I hadn't intended to ask questions about this, but um, that's because I hadn't read the bio until just before our interview. Um, and I and I think this is rather interesting for some of the people in our audience who who lean towards, you know, we have a lot of scholar practitioners on on the mm -hmm. show, and um, and I found I found I find the topic of your book, Avatar Bodies, A Tantra for Posthumanism. Uh, sounds like a fascinating book, and I kind of want to read it after I'm done with this interview. <laughs> um, but, you know, you mentioned that she has said she's an avatar of Vishnu, and you wrote this book, Avatar Bodies. So I'm, I'm curious, what is for those that are new to this idea, what is an avatar? And then also, you know, if you want to segue into a discussion of, for those that aren't are, um, are new to this kind of academic concept of posthumanism, what is, what is the connection between an avatar and this idea of Posthumanism. Well, uh, an avatar is a direct emanation of wisdom. Mm -hmm. So, when we ask, if we ask the question, "What is God?" Uh, God in this tradition is wisdom, mm -hmm. uh, or we could even say wisdom virtues. So, primordial intelligence, primordial compassion, primordial clarity. These are just a few of the wisdoms that are what the fundamental existence is actually composed of. And an avatar is, in our human life, a human being who shows up, who embodies those wisdoms in a way that most of us uh, you know, don't get to. <laughs> yeah, right. We're, most of us are more limited. So the avatars that are born already with this incredible degree of awakeness and understanding of how reality is and how it works. And those avatars of Vishnu are mostly human beings, although there are some animals also. My own personal view of the avatars is that they show up in human bodies precisely to show us what's possible in a human body. 
they kind of show us where we're going. They're like beacons. Mm. And they also influence a tremendous number of people just by how they are in the world. So they're, they usually don't do the kind of spiritual practice that the rest of us schlubs have to do. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but they are showing us the beacon. They're, they're showing us what one of the functions that Ma plays in my life is, you know, whenever I find myself feeling my own limitations or tensions or, you know, wanting to be sort of exercise, take the, some of those tensions out for a walk, you know, I just think of her and I think, oh, no, that's who I want to be. I don't really want to be this person who's going to lash out at somebody else or, you know, not open my heart to someone. Right. So she really functions at, functions for me as sort of this instant alchemist mm. uh, who reminds me of what I could be if I just let go of the tension. Yeah. Uh, the avatar bodies... You know, it's funny. I, I hope you don't mind, but uh, I don't really know what I meant by it. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so far behind me, but I can I can talk about uh, posthumanism. Yeah, I would love to hear how that sort of relate because I, I think it's the first time I've seen posthumanism and tantra in the same kind of phrase, and I would love to hear uh, what you think the relationship between those two ideas is. Well, first of all, there's a direct historical link. Okay. Because there's a set of European philosophers and social scientists like Deleuze and Guattari, yeah. and some of the other people that I talk about in the book, who did what their forebears have always done when they get into a tight place, and that is they steal ideas from uh, Indian philosophy or some Buddhist tradition. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, unacknowledged. So actually... There's you can find direct statements about Tantra, and I don't know if you know much about Deleuze and Guattari, but their whole, uh, a lot of their most important language about the egg and the plane of becoming come directly from North Indian Tantra. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I did know that. I, I, I have read Deleuze. I, I studied philosophy in, in grad school, actually at New School, where they love Deleuze. Um, and I, I've, never, I've never known about that connection. Is it explicit well, in some of the texts? It, it's explicit. He does mention Tantra a few times. And, you know, if I were that kind of scholar, I would have tried to get permission to go look in his library at the time when, and, and find what books he had there and what he was reading. But certainly at the time that that they were writing... There was, there were, uh, first of all, some teachers that had landed in Paris during the 60s, and also the, the some of the first Western scholars like André Padot had were in Paris and were writing about the Trika tradition. So definitely, those ideas were around. But for instance, the idea of the Anda, which is a Sanskrit word, and I, I'm not sure if my memory is serving me right, but I think Deleuze uses that word himself if not just the egg. It means egg, but it's basically kind of a zone or a, a, a zone of expressive capacity. Mm. And in the North Indian tantric tradition, the ananda is, uh, all of reality is made up of these different zones of creative or expressive capacity, and they overlap and, and are changing all the time. So they're kind of like zones of becoming or zones of expression. Mm. And, he, and he picked up on that also. And then the whole idea of like the plane and the plane of equality and, and all of those things, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, have a direct connection to the tradition that I'm practicing in. Wow. So uh, post-humanism is a tradition that is trying to address the horror uh, that ensued after the revelation of the Nazi death camps, uh, mostly among European peoples and philosophers and social scientists. When they saw what up close what human beings were capable of doing to other human beings, and that the whole idea that humans are essentially good or that humans are at the top of the heap, that they're superior animals, which is the fundament of humanism, really came into radical questioning and was 
the answer to that, at least one of the answers to that, has been post-humanism, which is to revision the human being as more of a decentralized right. set of capacities and which has uh, found one of its um, sites where it looks, where it's looking very closely at a different way of looking at relationships. Uh, it's looking at the relationship between humans and technology. Mm -hmm. So it's I can't I don't know that I can say more than that because. Um, yeah, no, I think that's plenty, and it's super fascinating, and I and I think it's a, it's a it's a really interesting idea that um, is very complementary to a lot of the teachings from many of the Eastern traditions. This kind of decentering of identity. Mm -hmm. um, right. So so um, I'm interested actually because uh, you say you're also. Um, uh, you consider yourself um, the tr one of your traditions to be that of Dzogchen, and I realize that I've been, until I heard you say it, I've been pronouncing it incorrectly for years now. That's fine. <laughs> uh, no problem. <laughs> so, um, so I'm interested what the uh, what from your perspective is the kind of complementarity between the tantric tradition and that of Dzogchen. Well, I think what you could describe both of those traditions in very few words, or very many words, depending on your desire, but uh, both traditions you could describe, the goal of them is to rest in, the, in your natural state or mm. to rest in your real nature, to come to this uh, experience of profound relaxation where you're experiencing your continuity with everything and you're simply resting in that in awareness with that, integrating with that, merging with that continually. Mm. And that is also what Ma taught, exactly the same thing. So there's this experience of people in both the Trika tradition and the Dzogchen tradition of recognizing your real nature, what you really are, not exactly who, but more what. And then having recognized that, integrating that recognition in every moment of your life mm. so that you're no longer defending a separate sense of self. Mm -hmm. You're no longer in the state of defensiveness and aggression. Mm. And so that is what both of those traditions are about. They have historical connections, and there are many, many similarities in the practices. Right. So, for instance, the practice of guru yoga uh, in the Dzogchen tradition is almost identical in some of its uh, most essential forms to practices in the Trika tradition. Hmm. There, you, you know, there are just many, many similarities, and you could say that those traditions grew up together along the Silk Road, mm -hmm. and there's ways to trace exchanges there that happened historically, but there's also in these traditions themselves a different kind of history that gets talked about that now that I am a practitioner myself, I find much more important, which is understanding how these wisdom traditions and the practices that they offer us actually come into the human realm. How do we actually come to be in possession of these practices that lead us to discover our essential nature. And my own experience personally, and certainly what all of my teachers have taught, is that those practices come to us from wisdom itself mm. in different forms that they are actually transmitted into the human realm from by other beings or wisdom itself in some other form, same thing. And that they're transmitted into the hearts and minds and awareness of uh, experienced practitioners who then, by virtue of that transmission, get the job of transmitting them to everybody else. Mm -hmm. And this is not really such a mysterious process. I think, again, just talking from my personal experience, anybody who goes deeply into these practices over many, many years will have some kind of experience of just an understanding that just blossoms inside of you apropos of nothing or suddenly hearing a mantra or something like that. The, the, it's, 
the way that they get talked about in the tradition is as if it's something exceptionally rare, but I actually don't think it is. Mm. So that the way that you talk about wisdom as being sort of the essence of reality is, you know, it's very different from how many people would often think about it. Whereas, you know, wisdom is some kind of faculty that you right. sort of, you know, cultivate inside, you know, inside the, the individual self. And you also say something similar. And, and this is something that I think is really interesting about devotion and and also compassion as having nothing to do with ethics. So, um, and it's, and I think that it's sort of this, this kind of way where you're talking about, um, virtue as being sort of constitutive elements of reality. So I'd Mm -hmm. love for you to talk a little bit about that. What do you mean when you say that it has nothing to do with ethics and, and what are we, what are we meaning by ethics then if it, if it doesn't have anything to do with that? Well, these, uh, these kinds of ways of talking about reality come out of my direct experience. Mm. And, and that is, uh, you know, after having practiced for a number of years, getting the opportunity to actually see into reality in a certain way and get into a kind of conversation with that reality and be schooled by it. Right. And I think this is the common experience of anyone who practices. So... When I was learning in the tradition first from one of my first teachers, uh, you know, the words that were used to describe God were things like omnipotent and omniscient and infinite and all that stuff. And I was totally put off by that. I really didn't care whether God was omnipotent or omniscient. (laughs) Those were just words to me. And then when, when my inner eyes started to open more and I had more direct awareness with my senses, of how reality is, I began to experience and see and understand that compassion and devotion and intelligence and creativity are actually what God is, Mm -hmm. and that that is actually what existence is made of, that that consciousness uh, and energy that is everything, that is the ground of our life, actually is an embodiment of what I call these wisdom virtues. So this means that we can't cultivate compassion or devotion. What we are actually doing is destructive. So the entire practice is is a destructive practice where we are getting rid of things that are obscuring the full embodied expression of these wisdom virtues that are already perfect and in full measure everywhere. Mm. The... The tradition teaches, and my experience is also this, that there is only auspiciousness here, Mm -hmm. that there is a joyful self-expressiveness that just goes on and on and on, continually overflowing. So instead of being right or wrong or good or bad, the actual essence of this reality is expressive. Mm -hmm. It's aesthetic. It is fundamentally an aesthetic experience that is just overflowing with self-expression and delight in contemplating one's own nature. So in the same way that when you create something like a podcast or a painting or a piece of writing or a piece of music, as, as a creator, you'll step back and you'll have this moment of profound enjoyment of what you have created you know, recognizing that it somehow appears to be outside of you, but it still is actually you. And that's exact. We do that. We experience that because that's exactly what God or AKA reality is doing with everything here. So there's, there's no need for ethics because everything, according to this tradition, is made out of the same consciousness and energy and all of the forms and activities that we experience and participate in are like waves arising from an ocean. Mm. They're, they're made of ocean. They are ocean and they arise and subside naturally. And there's, you know, we don't stand by the shore and cry when a wave dies too soon, or if a wave bashes into another wave, you know, mm. we enjoy all of it. And that's the same thing that's happening here. So it's so it's sort of as if ethics is only required when you um, have a conception of reality that is not made up of these kinds of benevolent qualities. That that in a certain sense, you know, you might say that 
the conception of reality that is sort of mad or random or that has no essential goodness to it would then um, make it required that one would, would cultivate something like ethics. Is that kind of the right. idea? Right. I mean, what we do in this kind of tradition is we we try to follow something like precepts for good living. Yeah. And those precepts are not really founded on ethics. They're more like functional ways to manage energy, to preserve your life so that you can not get karmically over-entangled. If you harm other people in a relative sense, you know, that creates karmic entanglement. And you're trying to uh, help everybody to wake up and help yourself to wake up. These are all relative teachings, though. They're not absolute teachings. So we're always trying to keep the relative and the absolute in mind at the same time. We're never abandoning the relative just because we hear a teaching like no ethics required. That doesn't mean (laughs) we should run out in the street and start killing everyone. Right, right, right. We have to pay close attention to our relative experience. That's where most of us live most of the time. And and it's based on not an idea necessarily of the world uh, having evil or not being all beneficent, but it's based on more fundamentally our sense of separation. Mm. So we, most of us, are having this experience of being these little objects in space, and we're very fragile, and we're subject to impermanence. So we feel very defensive and aggressive about protecting this little thing. Yeah. And that's really where all of the need for ethics arises from that fundamental experience of separation. Now, from the perspective of the tradition, there is no problem with that. That's just natural. It's part of the natural process of becoming and unbecoming that separation should occur. One of the examples I use is uh, I have a little ceramic cup next to where I teach on a little table. And, you know, that that little ceramic cup came out of a lump of clay. The lump of clay had more potential to become lots of different things. And once it becomes a cup, its potential is more limited. Mm -hmm. So that's what we are. We're like, we're like the God matter but limited in order to create this incredible variety of life. Uh, You know, when you look at our world, and we're just only one of many worlds, just overflowing with mind-boggling variety. And that is the joy of this experience. Mm -hmm. So one thing that that I really like about the way that you talk about Shaivism is that you emphasize a lot devotion, which I think with a lot of um, uh, teachers who are inspired by this tradition, that's not talked about as much um, mm-hmm. because it is such a it's such a rich sort of intellectual tradition as well. There's yeah. so much um, there's so much abstraction, and you can get really lost in the esoteric um, uh, you know discussions of the practice, and and you know it seems to be something that that intellectuals and scientifically minded people get really attracted to, but then but then um, you you sort of say that really devotion is ultimately the end of this practice as well. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, what is generally, you know, what is our misunderstanding about what devotion means, why we're sort of maybe culturally um, resistant to it, and um, and and how you see um, this tradition ending there. Well, first of all, I'm just a devotional person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I notice devotion, and I, I respond to it in other people and in the world. And devotion emerges from a sense of wonder. Mm. First of all, wonder that there's anything rather than nothing. And then wonder at all the things that are here. And furthermore, when you get more educated about reality, wonder at how it all works. And, you know, the opportunities one is given and the way that one is nurtured and schooled and given wisdom. So all of that wonder brings about a kind of natural experience of devotion. And then devotion itself is the devotion of everything here, of God to God's own creations, to the 
to the expressions of this reality's own nature that are ourselves and everything around us is an expression of the nature of God. And there's a sense of that devotion of itself to itself. And it's like deep. I mean, it, these words are so inadequate, but something like this divine appreciation of its own nature. So you could, there's a beautiful Maharashtrian poet, Gyanadeva, uh, who wrote about natural devotion in a beautiful way. And, you know, I, I don't have it in front of me. I can't read it. But it, he goes on in the vein of, you know, the sound is devoted to the ears and the touch is devoted to the skin. And this sense of everything meeting everything else, that when you're out in the world, everything is coming toward you and your senses are going out to gladly meet everything that's coming toward you. And there's this sense of wonder and, and just devotion when everything recognizes everything else and is able to receive it and appreciate it. So that is just going on night and day continuously. And I... I know there's a, a you know a bhakta tradition, and that's different a little bit from what I'm talking about. Because in the end, when you have a direct perception of how things actually are, devotion naturally arises. It's inevitable. So even if you're the most curmudgeonly practitioner, <laughs> it doesn't. You know, even if you think bhaktas are whatever, uh, a de devotion will naturally arise. Do you know who? Mark Tuskowski is? No. Mm -mm. Well, he's he's a great devotee himself and one of the great translators and commentators on the texts of the Trika tradition. He lives in Varanasi, and one time I was there... Oh, sorry, what's his last name again? Well, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but I think it's Tuskowski. Oh, yes, he wrote um, vibe, something, Stanzas of Vibration. Well, the, yeah, he yes. translated that. Oh, yeah. okay, yes. What, how so, do you pronounce his last... Or, sorry, how do we um, ask, spell don't it? Don't ask me how to... Oh, I can't spell it. <laughs> okay, I'll put that in the show notes, people who want to look him up. Really? Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we were there, and he was he gives satsang, and he asked me what should he give satsang on since we were there visiting, and I said, give satsang on devotion. And he really seemed startled, and I think just for the same reason that you brought up, which is that it's not talked about very much uh, roundabout, the spiritual water cooler. So <laughs> the spiritual water cooler. He actually gave two satsangs on it over a couple of weeks, and he said something which I think sums up the entire topic, which is he said, knowledge is devotion. Mm -hmm. That when you have knowledge, that is equal to the getting of devotion. Mm -hmm. When you have knowledge of how things really are, devotion overwhelms you. Mm. So what is, um, since you brought it up sort of um, uh, in passing, what is the difference between bhakta devotion and this kind of devotion as knowledge? Well, I don't know that I'm the person to answer that question, but okay. the bhakta movement is a tradition, one of the traditions in India that like the tantric tradition, um, has its roots in the fact that some people are excluded from performing ritual and participating in certain religious practices or spiritual practices because of their caste or their gender or something like that. And the Bhakta tradition was a tra is still a tradition of a direct relationship with the divine mm -hmm. that has the flavor of a lover. Yeah. And of this kind of surrender that uh, has a, some kind of divine sort of emotionalism attached to it. Mm -hmm. I don't really know a whole lot about it. It's not something that I've ever felt particularly, you know, drawn to follow. Yeah. But certainly a lot of the Krishna devotees are bhakta practitioners. But it, it, it's basically, from my perspective as an outsider, a very expressive tradition. There's been wonderful poetry that's come out of that tradition. And the kirtan tradition is in America is certainly uh, an inheritor of the bhakti tradition, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, one thing that you mentioned in one of the audios that I listened to was, you know, we hear a lot about this talk of um, 
the present moment. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we're all looking to get in, you know, the pres- <laughs> find the present, you know, just mm-hmm. be in the present, be in the present. And you say, um, alternatively, that we're looking to encounter presence. So I'm wondering if you can ex- ex- explicate that a little bit. Sure. You're asking great questions, by oh, the thank way. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so the present, the moment, is an aspect of linear time, past, present, and future. Right. And linear time is produced by our dualistic experience in in impermanence, where things are coming and going all the time. Mm. So that is that present moment is an aspect of uh, our ordinary awareness. Presence is a way of talking about the essence, our essence nature. Presence is the sense of awareness and liveliness that is everywhere, Mm -hmm. not just in us, but everywhere, coming from everywhere. And that presence, uh, getting in touch with that and immersing oneself in that is really one way of talking about the entire practice that we do. So there's a word in Sanskrit, samavesha, which means immersion. Rather than observing the present or trying to hold on to something or be in something, samavesha means immersing yourself or integrating yourself with this ubiquitous presence, this mm. livingness. Mm. I, I call it aware livingness. And, there, you know, in every tradition, there's some words that try to describe that, like Krishna consciousness or Christ consciousness or Buddha nature or... Uh, nature of mind or any number of words, uh, none of my mind just called it that. And presence is timeless. It's outside of linear time. Mm. And Ma called that the supreme moment, that when you are immersed in presence, you are immersed in what she called the supreme moment, some sort of maha time, great time. And this is really what we are aiming for. It's a it's an opening of the gates of all the senses, including the mind, and reintegrating the senses with the senses of reality so that there's no longer any feeling of separation. There's only an experience of continuity. Mm. Wow. So um, part of the things that are um, encouraging this separation or contributing to this sense of separation are you know, kind of the cultural karmas, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, the stories that we sort of um, are, are are continuously kind of reaffirming in our in our cultural experience. And one of the things um, you mentioned in um, one of your talks was somebody asked a question, and then you mentioned you spoke of Western psychology as a story that's become. This is basically word for word. Western psychology as a story that's become an embodied karma for a particular subset of human beings. Because someone was asking about uh, the chakras related to psychology. I'm I'm, mm-hmm. not, I'm not so interested in talking about the chakras so much, but Good. but I'm in, <laughs> but I'm interested in um, in just this idea of you know because people want to talk about yoga psychology, and I get really I, I have developed a resistance to this because of the the way that I feel psychological psychology being kind of saturated with this kind of narrative that I think that you're sort of drawing attention to. So I would love to sort of talk a little bit about what that what that story is and how it's perhaps contributing to the sense of separation that we're that that is sort of a limiting um limiting us from the realizing this expansive quality that you're talking about. Mhm. Well, first of all, modern psychology started with Freud. Right. You know, an Austrian outsider living at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Snorting cocaine. Snorting. Well, that, I don't know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that contributed anything, but <laughs> but certainly his method was to cre- listen to the stories that he elicited from his patients mm-hmm. and then interpret them. If you read his case studies... He interprets them, and then at the end he says, and now I think I have explained every point, and we're done. (laughs) So so this idea, first of all, that I think is very limiting, is that simply by explaining things, you can transform them, or that explanation is transformation. 
That's very interesting, yeah. So uh, that I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. I think it can change. It can sort of give you what's called horizontal change. It can sort of change your story and give you a more comfortable story. But it, it, it isn't intervening in your energy and your senses the way that a more direct practice would. Hmm. The other thing that's, I think, even more difficult in terms of trying to get into a spiritual practice is that most forms of modern psychotherapy or psychological practice or just our psychologist culture in general, at the center of it is a traumatized human being, mm. someone who has been hurt in some essential way and, and who needs to go into that hurt, excavate it, and transform it in some way, but who's basically harmable. Mm. And there are certain narratives of harm that we have really bought into, like how we are supposed to feel when X, Y, or Z harm happens. So that is really in direct conflict with my experience and what I'm teaching, which is that we can have an experience of harm, but nothing can harm our essence nature. We have an adamantine or diamond-like quality of essential goodness which isn't goodness like humanism goodness. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's that because we are made of that enlightened essence nature and that it's available for all of us to contact and that it can never be destroyed. So when we come to practice with this attitude that we're damaged and we have to fix something, then we, sometimes we have a very difficult time uh, getting into a different view, which is just feeling our basic goodness and how absolutely indestructible that is and going on from there and letting go of some of these stories and even recognizing our habitual responses to things, even to trauma, is not a necessary response. It's simply a conditioned response. So our responses to abuse, our responses to war, our responses to just difficulties, you know, getting a parking ticket, mm -hmm. all of those responses are extremely conditioned by this assumption that we can actually be harmed in some fundamental way. Mm -hmm. And what this tradition teaches you to discover directly for yourself is that you cannot be harmed in a fundamental way. You can only have that experience. And it's a real experience, but it is an aspect of conditioning of karma, not something that will we'll stick around. It's a part of impermanence. Wow. Wow. You just blew my mind right there. Uh, I love this idea that you're making about explanation not being transformation um, because I guess it's sort of something that resonates with me as um, in my sort of academic experience in philosophy, I was sort of, I, I thought, wow, well, they're, you know, they're doing a lot of, you know, talking about and explaining all of these different mm -hmm. factors, you know, even in political philosophy where they think they're doing something significant, but there's no embodied practice, you know, mm -hmm. there's no, which is sort of the reason why I called the pro overall project, this overall project embodied philosophy. Yeah, and actually, great. and I wanted to talk actually why, uh, use this as a segue to talk about why you hate the word philosophy, because I think that's great. Mm -hmm. And, because um, <laughs> you mentioned it. And since I have used the word philosophy as a part of this project, I thought we could maybe talk about that for a second. <laughs> well, I only dislike it in the sense that when people talk about philosophy and indeed practice philosophy, <clears throat> they're largely talking about something they're doing with their ordinary intellectual mind. Right. And of course, some of the greatest philosophers have had very mystical experiences. And by mystical, that means some other kind of experience that's not just intellect-centered. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but I don't like to use the word philosophy uh, in my teachings because then people have the attitude that they can just come along and collect some ideas and try to come up with a good explanation for themselves of the ideas and that, that what is, that's what it's actually about. Right. So in, in Sanskrit, there's a, a phrase, pratyaksha darshana. It means direct realization or direct seeing. Mm -hmm. And so the, the aim of the practices that I'm doing is so that I can directly see into reality for myself without any conceptual apparatus. 
Mm. Because reality is hugely communicative. It is, as one other teacher said, a theater of communication. And when you drop your conceptual apparatus and open your senses to the wisdom and intelligence that's here, you can understand more than any philosopher or scientist directly with just your own body and your own mind. It's phenomenal. Mm. So that's why the word philosophy bothers me. I mean, for much the same reason I think it bothers you, because it's not an embodied practice, but furthermore, it assumes that you can just use your ordinary mind and figure things out. Mm -hmm. It turns out that you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess for me, you know, I always, I, I, and whenever I write about philosophy, I'm always trying to draw attention to its, you know, original meaning, which, or its semantic meaning, which is love of wisdom. And, you know, if we're mm -hmm. talking about wisdom being the very essence nature of reality, then, then it does have sort of at least historical, um, uh, you know, reasons where we could sort of still use it. But I think you're right that it has become associated with pretty much a purely abstract armchair theorizing practice. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, Plato had a lot of mystical experiences, and I'm sure people like Deleuze and Guattari have also. Yeah. And other philosophers that have gone into what they've done, but not necessarily explicitly. Right. And yeah, the rest of it is this overconfidence in the human mind mm -hmm. coming up with systems and systems of thought. And of course we know those things go by the wayside, but Is, are those systems of thought, like our, you know, our need to kind of build bigger and bigger and more complicated systems of thought. What I mean, is that, is that grounded in, I mean, what kind of emotional reactivity is that grounded in, or, you know, in terms of like what the tradition would say, like, why do we do that? Why do we, is it, is it that we think that that's getting us closer to reality by bu building up larger architectures of, you know, systems of intellectual knowledge? I mean, you know, where does that come from? Well, it would be called what, uh, what is human realm karmic vision. So human realm karmic vision is an over-reliance on things like explanation and categorization and systemization as a way of managing the fundamental openness of life. Mm. So basically, it's a kind of command and control operation. Right, right. Uh -huh. and, and the way that I often think of it is if you have this infinite plane of living awareness, and then someone has built a picket fence somewhere around some tiny, tiny little portion of it, uh, and that's your theory or that's your system of thought. So it's a it's a way it gets things done some some systems get stuff done yeah in, in in an ordinary sense it's not all bad but it's a mistake this you know part of it is this urge to have what's called a theory of everything mm -hmm. and kind of wrap up reality in some sort of explanation or system yeah and basically it's a, to me it's a fear of openness yeah yeah i was just gonna, i was going to ask if you thought it was grounded in a kind of fear or anxiety about just kind of that infinite openness that it needs to be somehow um closed yeah absolutely and the people who, you know the students that i teach who are most attached to that way of being in the world the you know explaining everything who always always want to know what everything means always, you know, want to have their calendars color-coded and everything <laughs> categorized. Uh, they're generally the ones who feel the most anxious hmm. doing practices like open-eyed meditation or practices where they don't get the kind of instruction that is sort of step-by-step -step and mechanical. So there's a whole set of instructions called pointing out instructions that basically are trying to lead you to how to do something that really can't be taught. And that really drives people who live in that picket fence crazy, that they really have to learn a whole new way of being in the world experientially. Mm. It, you know, there's another thing that occurs to me to say, which is that in our culture, we are so trained to over-rely on our mind mm -hmm. that many of us have actually lost the ability to tell the difference between thinking and direct experience. Right. This is one of the things I encountered when I started teaching, that it's, it's totally innocent, uh, but thinking has become our direct experience in some cases. 
And then the idea that there would be some other kind of experience is mystifying yeah. and has to be reintroduced. The gates of the senses have to be reopened. Mm-hmm. So it's almost that we've lost our, our capacity to, to kind of see that possibility in our lives. And, and is that sort of that everything has become sort of saturated with thinking? Yeah, like just in a very simple, ordinary way, you ask someone how they're feeling and they'll tell you what they're thinking. Right. <laughs> that's what <laughs> I, I found just, when I went to my own therapist. She asked me how I'm feeling. I'm like, I don't actually know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very, you know, everything is actually very, very simple. <laughs> <laughs> and then you say, no, I mean, how are you feeling? And then there's a sort of puzzled moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely fall prey to that myself, I have to say. Uh, that's why I practice. Um, yeah. So one thing that I wanted to ask you, <clears throat> um, you in, in your in your bio that I read at the beginning, it mentions that you're an expert diviner, and in your on your website and in some of the materials, it mentions divination practices as being mm-hmm. part of this kind of um, lineage. So I guess uh, for people that that may people have sort of ideas of witchcraft and wizardry when they hear that word, um, what what is divination and what are what would be modern practices of of divination? Uh, well, modern practices of divination are the same as the ancient ones. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we still use the ancient divination arts like. Uh, the I Ching or tarot or divination with birds and fire and mm-hmm. water and omens and all kinds of divination. But divination, one of the word, one of the ways of translating that is as an open door. Divination opens a door between you and wisdom. Mm-hmm. So it's like you get to have that direct connection with a little bit of apparatus, a little bit of help. Most of us have an experience at some time or another that where we just feel we just know something or we just know what's right. We have a feeling we would say in our heart that is this rock solid feeling of the rightness or the wrongness of something for us. And yet we lose that, you know, we're, we're not in that all the time. So divination helps us to be in that place Mm. when we can't do it for ourselves. Mm. Uh, The kind of divination that I do most regularly is with uh, an oracle called the Joey, which is the parent of the I Ching. So the Joey is quite a number of hundreds of years older than what we generally call the I Ching. And it's a very gutsy kind of down-to-earth oracle. It's used exactly the same way as the I Ching, but it's not as precious or upper-crusty as the I Ching is. So I, I was taught divination by a wonderful teacher in a, in a Taoist tradition. His name is Lu Ming. Uh, he died last year or so, but I consider it to be one of the absolute greatest, most important gifts I've ever been given by any teacher. Mm. I don't know how I would get through life without it, but more than that, it has absolutely schooled me in patience and modesty. Two things that coming into a tantric uh, tradition where the, you could say the central protagonist is kind of this heroic fiery male. (laughs) So these, and I'm sort of at, you know, at the time when I came in, I was sort of like a heroic fiery female, but you know, to, to then here I am 60 years old, be talking about patience and modesty and really feeling moved by those things and trying to open myself up more to them at this point in my life that I would never have gotten to this point if it were not for divination Mm. and it has been a great teacher to me Lu Ming used to call it a guru in your pocket basically having wisdom just right there whenever you need to consult with it and you're not able to get there on your own so divination is in every single culture and it works because wisdom is the soup that we're swimming around in and wisdom is always there for us to talk to and we just need to address ourselves to it and discover that. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, some people have a very different worldview and think that it's hocus-pocus or dangerous even, and that's fine. But every teacher I've had has used some form of divination. The Dalai Lama has a state oracle and uses divination regularly. This is not 
it's not really a fringe thing. <laughs> mm. uh, I think it's more the norm than people imagine, but it really is a wonderful practice. So when you were sort of to wrap, I have one more question and then we'll start to wrap things up. But when you had mentioned, um, you know, that sort of feeling that something is right um, or wrong, you know, having that kind of like knee jerk or intuitive feeling, um, mm-hmm. I guess for me personally, and this my question comes from my own experience, I'm always conflicted about whether or not that comes from a place of you know, percolating up from the wisdom of, of existence, or if it's, you know, something kind of embedded in my own unconscious, you know, something that's more mobile, motivated by my own, mm-hmm. um, you know, fears or anxieties and th- these kinds of, you know, uh, karmas that I'm looking to dissolve with my practice. So in that kind of a situation, I mean, what do you appeal to for guidance when you're when you sort of have a hunch about something but you're 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 torn between whether or not it's actually legitimately truthful uh, arising from kind of a place of wisdom or it's arising from some kind of um karma mm-hmm. well there's lots of different ways to tell that um, and probably more time than we have to describe but one way is that most often when you're just experiencing some sort of karmic impulse to go in some direction, it comes with a great deal of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And anxiety is like that little chugging engine of compulsion where your thoughts are swirling around and you're, you're feeling troubled by something. Yeah. Uh, these wisdom impulses are a moment of clarity. Mm. And if you can catch them soon enough, there's not that sense of anxiety. There's, there might be fear because often that wisdom impulse is asking you to do something that's not entirely comfortable. You know, whereas the other kind of thing, the karmic thing, is usually like, yeah, I should call him one more time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's that same old, same old thing you've always done. But the, the real clarity comes in that moment when you just have the feeling of rightness for you and it's, it could be terrifying, but it has a sense of solidity and clarity. Mm. Now the real litmus test is afterwards when, if you follow real wisdom that's bubbling up inside of you, you, no matter how terrified you are immediately afterwards, you will feel a sense of relaxation. Mm. The sense of rightness will solidify. You'll feel more confident. Whereas if you're just following karmic fixation, the whole engine of fixation will start up all over again and you'll feel anxious again very, very quickly. Following wisdom always leads to relaxation. Following karmic fixation always leads to more compulsion. It's That's a law of nature. Mm. Well, that's a very clear distinction. Thank you. <laughs> There's a little, little thing. I don't know how much time we have. but We have any, we we have have any time for sure. There's a, a little meditation, my very first teacher taught me that I still teach my students sometimes. It's called a two roads meditation. When you're trying to decide whether to do one thing or another or do or not do, you imagine yourself at a crossroads and one road goes off in one direction and the other in the other direction. So you imagine yourself walking down one path, one road, and on that road is everything that would be entailed with one decision. And you see how your body feels and you see how you feel walking down that road, visualizing and experiencing everything you imagine that decision would bring about. And then you visualize yourself walking down the other decision path and all the things that might entail. And you see how your body feels and how you feel emotionally on that path. And whichever path you feel more relaxed on, that's the way that's the way you choose. Oh, that's beautiful. It's kind of infallible. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's terrifying. But <laughs> I, for some reason, I always imagine myself like somewhere in some dusty, desert-like road where it's sort of going off into a neutral horizon, and then there are things on the road. I don't know why, but it could be anything. You can also do it walking in a circle. You know, just walk around in a circle, and that's one decision, and then walk in the opposite way in the circle, and that's another. But the main trick is to not, it's not based on what you think, it's based on how you feel. And whichever path you feel most relaxed on, 
that's the one you choose. Mm -hmm. Wow, beautiful. Thank you for offering that. Sure. So this has been a really beautiful conversation, Shambhavi. I'm I'm really pleased with all of the wonderful things we've chatted about, and you've offered so much um, profound wisdom. So thank you so much. Um, and just to close, I wanted to see if you wanted to offer um, the you know any 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 websites or or opportunities for people to to learn from you, or if you have any workshops coming up, if you're traveling at all, if you want to share any of that. Well, our organization, which is a nonprofit, Jayakula, has a website, jayakula.org, and all of the teachings that I give are on that website. I'm in Portland, Maine. I do travel to Portland, Oregon a couple times a year. How did, so, that, how did that happen? Uh, did you just really like the name Portland? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I moved to Portland, Oregon first oh. from San Francisco. I see. I, I wanted to leave San Francisco, and I did a divination and said, go to Portland, Oregon. Hmm. So I was there for seven years, and our community really grew. And uh, then I wanted to leave Portland, Oregon. So I um, consulted my astrology teacher, and she said to move to Maine. So we moved to Maine. So now we have a bi-coastal community. And That's amazing. Maine is really beautiful. But I also still like going back to Portland, Oregon. Yeah. I don't travel that much otherwise. Um, I'm really trying to keep things smaller uh, so that I can continue to work very closely with the students that I have. Yeah. I live with students, and I uh, am in contact with most of my students every week, if not every day. Wow. And this is—I'm trying to— you know, do this experiment of what's called a guru kula situation where people are in very close contact with their teacher and, and doing everyday things like going to the movies and going out to dinner and stuff like that. Uh, I'm trying to kind of import that into a, a modern context. It's something that appeals to me very, very, very much. Mm. And I, I occasionally travel somewhere else, but I, um, Pretty happy staying put. Yeah, you're focused yeah, you're... on this smaller community. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So jayakula.org, it has wonderful materials. I've spent a lot of time on it, and it's, it definitely is a great resource. So thank you for the, all the work you've put into it. Um, and thank you for this wonderful conversation, Shambhavi. It's Thanks really been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. I hope appreciate to speak... you inviting me. Absolutely. Speak to you soon and, and, uh, and stay warm up there in cold Maine. <laughs> I'm not sure how cold it is yet, but I know it gets cold. It's really nice right now, actually. Oh, perfect. Awesome. Beautiful. <laughs> Great. All right. Speak to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Shambhavi Saraswati. For more information about Shambhavi and her teachings, check out jayakula.org.